Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. The Portland Community Football Club is like a lot of youth sports organizations. It provides coaching, training, and opportunities for kids of different ages to play competitive soccer. But the PCFC is unlike some organizations in its mission to serve kids regardless of their gender or their family's ability to pay. It was founded 10 years ago by Cage Leitner, who focused on kids in low-income and first- and second-generation immigrant families. He says his mission is to liberate sports. Leitner joins us now along with a PCFC player. Saiduila is a senior at Portland's Lincoln High School. It's great to have both of you on the show. Great to be here. Cage, what did sports mean to you when you were a kid? Um, it meant everything to me. I grew up as a, a young girl, actually, so I'm a trans man. And in my younger years of being a kid that was um, picked on, bullied, teased for not fitting in to being what girls are supposed to look like or be like, um, sports was my place that I found my refuge and sort of my ability to work through the anxiety and the stress and the bullying. And it was all sports. I played softball and basketball and soccer, volleyball. I just couldn't stop being an athlete because it gave me such a sense of purpose. I mean, you told the New York Times in a profile, an article back in May, that sports kept you alive. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Um, It was sports and my family, Um, but sports is really what gave me the sense to keep going day after day, even though I would day after day get bullied and teased and picked on and told that I was a freak and told that I didn't belong. And I got all the messaging that there was something wrong with me from society. But when I would step into the sports realm, um, I could let go of all of that and I could be this one Um, congruent person. And that's what kept me going day after day. And if I didn't have those sports, I don't think that I would be here. I just don't think that I would be alive. Hmm. When did you start coaching? When I was 15. What was that like? Oh, I loved it. It was was the same sense of joy and um, ability to see my future as sports was when I started sports because I started to recognize this is where I belong. I belong as a coach. I belong working with youth and being a part of their lives and seeing them excel within the sport that they love. I was soccer was what I was coaching, but also to just excel in life because I got to see what it was to be a coach and a mentor um, for kids from you know all different kinds of backgrounds. And you stayed coaching, right? Yeah. I mean, this, all this, obviously, this is before you transitioned. Yeah. Did it seem possible to you, zooming forward a little bit, in, say, the, the early to mid-2000s, yeah. to be a youth sports coach and be an out trans person? No. Why Absolutely not? not. Um, well, in the, early, in the early 2000s, I was an out uh, queer coach, and so I wasn't hiding the fact that I... Um, was an LGBTQ person, but then when it came to to looking at transitioning and my voice changing and my body changing and changing my name and my pronouns, I got all kinds of messages from the athletic world, from the coaching world, that that's not acceptable. Explicit messages. Yeah, I had an explicit experience with a, a fellow coach when I said, you know, I'm going to change my name to Cage and this is what I'm going to start to use, and she laughed at me and said, that's ridiculous. I, I'm not going to call you that. 
that was a good message to me of, okay, this isn't safe place a, for me. A clear message, if not a good one. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. But I mean, I guess when you say there was a benefit to the clarity, even if I imagine it was painful to hear. Yeah, it was a clear message of, I have to stop coaching for now to do this transition. I have to leave what I love to transition. Because at that point, that was also a clear decision you had to make. Yes. Give up something you loved so you could actually survive as who you actually are. Right. Yeah, that I could be my authentic self. So so let's fast forward a bit. You eventually transitioned and you started working as uh, an after-school program instructor in East Portland. Mm -hmm. Why did you start this football club? Well, it actually started with that work that I was doing out in East County with kids and after-school programs because I was doing soccer with those kids as their soccer instructor through those after-school programs. And I didn't realize at the time, but what I was seeing was the culmination of bringing this beautiful game together with social justice and understanding that the communities that are getting left out of this sport are the communities that are also not getting access to education, healthcare, um, all of the systemic barriers that exist in our society are also impacting these kids to play soccer. And what I found was that through coaching and through being a part of that, those kids' lives was that I was learning about what their lives were and what the barriers were that their families were up against. And that's when it started to coalesce in my mind of, why can't we have a soccer club that supports these these communities through well, the game? This has been a, a little bit of a mystery to me. I'm obviously, soccer or football around the world mm -hmm. is, it's a global sport, partly because it is, it's relatively cheap to play in a lot of ways. People yeah. all over the world, um, in, in countries that have way fewer resources than we do, they figure out ways to play the game with whatever kind of ball on whatever kind of field. Yeah. What kinds of inequities do you see, in particular in, in youth soccer in mm -hmm. this country? The problem in this country is that the game has been privatized. And so it became a game where there was money to be made and the money was through the, the privatization of training and giving and getting kids that extra special training because the game didn't originate here in the US. It originated from around the world and it got brought to the US. And so there was no structure to it. There was no centralized way of, of keeping the game at an accessible level. You mean you sort of, a, it's a suburban game yeah. when it came to America exactly. more so. Yep, ab absolutely. And so because it didn't keep that kind of grassroots level um, that it has around the, uh, around the world, it immediately jumped into um, more and more fees, more and more exclusivity around being able to excel in the game. If you keep it at a recreational level, still fairly affordable. But as soon as you try to excel and thrive and get to a higher level of competition, premier level, that's when the, the money and the um, exclusivity gets baked into it, the travel, um, the experience of you have to go to these different tournaments around the country to get seen, to go to college, for Saidu to, to leave and go to college on a soccer scholarship through the system as it exists, he would have to be seen by scouts. And that means you have to travel to these big tournaments around the country. You have to have money to travel. You know, it's, it's interesting, this aspect of it, because the participation of, of transgender athletes has obviously become so politicized and, and such uh, such a... Um, a talking point in, in some circles in recent years. And it's I don't mean to minimize that as an issue. And we can talk more about mm -hmm. that as we go. But it seems like what you're saying is that for many people, the, the class aspects, uh, the class inclusion question is 
is numerically maybe even a, a bigger deal in this country right now when mm-hmm. it comes to youth participation in, in soccer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to balance because I think the economic barriers that are up against kids to be able to participate in all kinds of sports. This That's why Liberate Sports is our mission um, that we're building right now because it's really applicable to other sports as well. But the economic barriers are the first biggest barrier. If you can reduce those barriers for around the, um, the game of soccer, which we've done, then the, the doors start opening up and you can create a space where you get the opportunity to have more people from different backgrounds come in, including trans players, including LGBTQ players and families and coaches. But that economic barrier is the thing that stops most people right in its tracks. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, we are talking right now with Cage Leitner. Ten years ago, he founded the Portland Community Football Club. Saidu Yila is with us as well. He is a high school senior and a member of the club. Saidu, why did you join this football club? Because um, um, basically, I, I love soccer very much, and um, I feel like it gave me a connection with my dad. And PCFC was a place like I can have more connection than, like, they basically treat us, the players, as their own kids, and mm. I feel like I, I'm fitting in this, in this uh, club. You said you can have more connection with your dad. Yeah, my understanding. So you don't live with him, right? Nah. Where is he? He's in Sierra Leone. And how how important is soccer to him and and to the relationship that you have with him? Pretty pretty good. Mm. Like he's a huge soccer fan and he loves to play soccer every day hmm. and so for you to take part in it it's a way to, to maintain that connection even though you're thousands of miles away yeah I mean how would you describe the relationship that you have with with cage right now the the director of this club um like it's basically um, a coach and a player having like a connection that that um, supposed to be in a club and I feel like Cage um, basically he's more than a coach to me because like they give me the opportunity to be part of their team and like coach kids and get to like um, doing a refereeing stuff like that. Oh, so you've expanded this. You're not just playing. Nah. You're coaching younger kids? Yeah, I'm coaching younger kids. What's too. that like? It's pretty fun. Like makes me feel like I'm coaching my younger self. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Um, what's the language? Like we were just talking right before we um, we went live and because we were talking about you learning English and then and I, I asked if if playing soccer has helped you learn English and you said, no, really, it's helped me learn Spanish. Yeah. Why is that? Because like I'm going to say 95% of our players and they're basically um, Hispanic and like they speak Spanish everywhere, and but like at school and when they have, when they hang out with their friends, they speak English. But like at home, they speak Spanish, and like I understand Spanish even at practice. Most of the parents are there, so like they speak, and I started understanding Spanish. Huh. And basic things on the field, like like pass to me, all that's in Spanish because yeah. it's, it comes to mind quickly. I imagine. Yeah. What's it been like to be a referee? We've talked in the past about the challenges that can present even for adults when sometimes parents act out. Do you have to show that you're the boss? Definitely. Because, like, I basically, I have to tell the parents, like, 
I'm in charge of the game and like they they don't supposed to like tell me what's wrong and what's good for the for the game. So like I feel like I'm in charge and I don't listen to parents. Hmm. Cage, so to go back to the the creation of this club. I mean, how is what you're doing and the the way you're operating different from other clubs? And I should note that you know, when I've when I've looked at some other well known um, organizations that, that provide youth soccer in Portland, they do on their websites they talk about giving fifty percent discounts to families, mm-hmm. or and, the, and some of them say, you know, get if that's not enough, if you need more financial help, mm-hmm. you know, get in touch with us directly and and we'll talk to you. So it's it's not like there, there do seem to be some options for low-income families. Mm-hmm. How is what you're doing different? It's a really good distinction, and I'm <clears throat> glad you brought it up because the biggest difference is that our fees to start out are just fifty dollars a season, five zero per season, not fifteen hundred per year, not two thousand per year, and that includes at the higher levels. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, and when you say fifteen hundred, you didn't make that up for for the, for some of the elite. Um, y- annual fees right now for say a 15 year old or a 16 year old it could be $1800. Yeah, easily. Yeah. So yours is 50. $50 per season and then if families need more support and can't afford that then we we drop that down to $35 per season. If families are needing more support and can't afford that then we say we'll give you a free scholarship. The biggest difference is is that when we say we're going to provide something to the families based on what they can afford, we don't ask them to prove to us what that means. The bigger clubs um, have their systems, have their their processes, which is fine. The processes that they have is that they need proof of income. They need tax records. They need um, the kind of information that a lot of undocumented families don't have or aren't going to have access to. And so that's right there a barrier to even submit for that that application for a scholarship. Um, so we just took that barrier away and just said, let's make these fees already something that's pretty reasonable and then be very family-centered around how do we make this even more accessible. How do you organize the teams? The teams are based on age and then um, skill level. And we also have no gender segregated teams. And so that's another way we're doing things really differently. We don't have an all girls or an all boys team. Um, And we're doing that because we see the opportunity for kids playing together as so beneficial to their skill level, their development, but also to really un- um, unburden their minds around gender expectations. And I think particularly for the boys, getting to see their girls um, on their team playing so hard, so competitively, so skillfully, it's really changed the boys' minds a lot around girls can really play. And the and so that I imagine that means that you're just, as you're putting the teams together, since you said it's about, it's about ability, you have the, the highest level teams, which mm-hmm. are mixed gender, and then the, the medium ones, and then and then the the starters or the or the the, right. the the early early sport kids who may need a little bit more knowledge about how to do it. All of them, boys and girls, mixed together. Yeah, yeah. Who do you go against? I mean, are there are there leagues that are set up in the same way? No. So all, so everybody's playing against all boys teams. Um, every once in a while, you'll see at the younger ages some other mixed gender teams that show up at the real young ages. But typically, once you're past eight or nine year olds, then it's it's all boys because that's the way the leagues are set up. It's the rule that if you have one boy on a team, it's a boys team. What do you hear from opposing parents or coaches about the the way you have set up your league? 
We don't hear as much anymore. In the early years, there was some um, there was some murmur, some discussion, some pushback on the girls that are on the team. It was, all, it was almost always around the girls, right? But that's really what the focus was about the girls that were on the boys' team and um, are they the right age? Is this appropriate? Can they keep up? Can they play? And we just kind of ignored those and said, well, let's just go play and see how it works out. And it's always worked out just fine. Um, so those concerns have have largely gone away as you've been playing? Yeah, I don't hear as many of those concerns coming my way anymore from our coaches. It's not as much of a pushback. Um, I think sometimes we get more complaints around... Um, Sometimes there's been some discussion about the rainbow flag on our jerseys that we have. Uh, some of the kids getting some comments towards them about the rainbow flag. Sometimes parents of other teams making comments about forcing kids to wear, you know, LGBTQ related things. So that's propaganda. I mean, yeah. what do people? I'm just curious what they actually say. Um, I've had a parent report to me that she was at a at a field with her child who has the rainbow flag on the jersey, and a parent you know, the, at the field from another team just said, I can't believe you're letting your child wear that. And she said, I don't see a problem with it. This is, we, we support everybody at our club. Hmm. How has the club grown over the last decade? Well, we started with about 75 kids in 2013 for our first fall season, and we're now past 200. Um, and so we've steadily just continued to add more and more players throughout the years. I think what's important to note about that is that that doesn't sound like a lot of players compared to these other big clubs who have 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 kids. But the reason that we've grown so slowly is really intentional. I really set out to be intentional with this club that if we're going to say we're providing to underserved communities and marginalized communities something of high quality, I don't want to let those communities down. And so when when clubs sometimes grow really big, really fast, you lose touch with your community. And it's really important to us that we are connected to our families and our players um, on, a, on a deep level to understand what their needs are. And so we've intentionally stayed small and connected and a, and a family-centered club. Going back to the, the Liberate Sports Movement and, and your, your yeah. largest goal here, what is it? I mean, I guess, I mean, for example, one, one thing I'm wondering is how important it is to you to win championships, to, <laughs> to win individual yeah. games and championships, to, and to turn out elite athletes who can go on to Division I play, for example, in yeah. college. A and is that ever at odds with your broadest goals of inclusion? Can, can you do both of those at once, or at certain points, are they intention? They, that's a really um, relevant conversation that we're having right now with the, as the club is growing, and it, it, they are at odds. And that's an unfortunate part of this system is that it's, it seems difficult to have the ability to train players to get to that Division One level or that elite premier level and still create the inclusion. Because of the way the system is created, um, if you want to create those premier level elite players, you have to hire a whole lot of more expensive coaches. You need the expertise from those coaches. You need to pay those coaches well, and that takes a lot more funding. We are not a membership-based funding. We are a funding club through grants, through individual donations, through sponsorships. That amount of work that takes to bring in that revenue is hindering our ability to bring in the kind of elite level coaching that we would need for those players. But that's actually not our goal. 
Our goal isn't to turn out those elite level players. It isn't to win championships. It is to create a space where everybody feels welcomed and safe and included so that they can thrive and excel to whatever level that is for them. And if at the end of the day, we can turn out a premier level team, that's icing on the cake for us. That's just like a, a little bit more that we can say we've done, but that's not our primary goal. Our primary goal is to create um, a club where everybody wants to feel like they can be there. So I do, could you be playing soccer regularly if it weren't for the PCFC? Um, I could, but like, I would feel like uh, I need somewhere I can build up another like strong strong like connections with the coaches players but like um it's really hard for me without pcfc sometimes hmm. cage leitner and saiduila thanks very much thanks Dave. thank you saiduila plays soccer and coaches and referees as part of the portland community football club that's something that cage leitner founded 10 years ago he's the executive director of the pcfc also the founder and consultant at quantum gender Tomorrow on the show, when you look at a painting, you can't always tell how accurate it is or how much artistic license has been taken. But a new study from Oregon State University shows that some 19th century landscape paintings are accurate enough to aid in historical forest research. We're going to hear about the collaboration between an art historian and a forest scientist on the next Think Out Loud. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. 